Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Miss the show, no worries. We've got you covered on point now on the podcast. We'll speak with a former military expert who was hired to give his emergency expertise to Alberta only to watch all the expertise get tossed out the window once COVID came and all the politicians got panicked. Why he thinks more military expertise should have been used instead of just the doctors. Human rights groups wagging their finger uh, in shame at Justin Trudeau for taking vaccines meant for the poorest nations of the world to save his political hide. And why can't we just make vaccines here? Well, we'll talk to an expert who points out Canada has made it clear to Big Pharma we're not worth doing business here. Let's get talking. What's your point? You just don't ever get the point. Am I getting through to you? That's the point. Do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. You're listening. Today, we're seeing some sunlight break through the clouds. Daily case numbers are down. Transmission rates are down. Less people are being hospitalized. My friends, the measures are working. Staying home is saving lives. Ontario is opening up the economy, but it comes with a whole bunch of buts and ifs and conditions that for many businesses is going to spell the end. But we do kick off with some good news for a change. A little bit of a return to normal. You know, we got some kids back to school, which is just great for them. It's great for their parents. My son goes back uh, on Tuesday, next Tuesday. For me, it cannot happen, you know, soon enough. And on Friday, uh, he broke down. He asked his teacher to speak privately online, which of course meant that I had to eavesdrop which is when I overheard him tell her that when she talks about everyone's brothers and sisters, it makes him sad because he doesn't have either. And so, of course, she did her best. And she said, well, you've got lots of friends. And I know what she was trying to do. But then the response was, as only a seven-year-old can say, I'm not allowed to go near them. So our weekend was spent, you know, talking to him about all the good things coming, you know, summer's coming, camp will be hopefully coming. And you've got a lot of things that others don't. But, you know, this is the kind of damage that we are doing to kids that I don't think can be measured for a good long time. And then you look at the damage that we're doing to businesses, the economy. And they got some good news today, albeit the openings that Premier Ford announced today are going to come in really slowly. And when you think about it, these businesses have been shut down since November 23rd. That's almost three months. And that doesn't include how much time they lost in the spring. But, of course, it was done to stop the spread of COVID that they are clearly not spreading. And on the weekend, I uh, took a very brisk walk because, was it cold on Saturday? But I walked through the neighborhood because I was feeling a bit stir-crazy and I wanted to kind of get out, see what was going on. And what a sad state. The liquor store had a lineup around the block. So that business, which is apparently essential, was just bustling. But store after store that I walked by was either dark or there was a sign saying pick up cur- you know, curbside only. 
and then one person's just inside sitting there waiting for business that's clearly not coming. And then there were other stores that had a sign. One had a sign that said, no good offer will be rejected. And that's because they're shutting down. So it saddened me because these guys have tried so, so hard to survive, and many of them just simply can't. And so we learned today that, you know, starting Wednesday, we'll have areas outside of Toronto, Peel, and York that can start opening up. And you're going to have some small businesses and big box that can, I guess, have about 25% limit. Grocery stores, 50%. And then after February 22nd, Toronto and GTA start opening. But there are a lot of buts to this that I'm still figuring out. I mean, no indoor gatherings still allowed. So no in-dining. And in hot zones, which is basically the whole GTA, gyms and salons still can't open. I mean, really? There's still stay-at-home measures in place. And if cases go up at all, the premier says he's going to shut it all down again. Let me be clear. If we see the numbers spike again, we're prepared to take further action as necessary. Because nothing is more important than protecting our people right now. So please, we need to keep bending the curve, and we need to stay home as much as possible. Mm-hmm. City's top doctor, Toronto's top doctor, doesn't think we should be reopening at all. No, no. Dr. Uh, Priscilla de Villiers says with all these new variants coming in, we're in a new kind of pandemic and that business should stay uh, closed. And of course, she has yet to lose a paycheck. I mean, her scarf collection grows by the day. And I'd remind her that, you know, we likely wouldn't be in this mess if Toronto Health, which she runs, hadn't lost control of tracing months ago. I mean, do none of these health experts actually care about the mental health pandemic that they are creating? I mean, imagine telling these businesses, you should suffer more because we failed to do our job. And I've talked to lots of businesses. I'm sure you've spoken to businesses. And most of the businesses I've spoken to say they're never, ever going to recoup losses. And these are businesses that took decades to build. And so they're trying to open up just so they can at least salvage something. But, but why did they have to lock down at all? It's clear that they're not killing those in long-term care. They aren't driving the spread, yet they pay the biggest price. I mean, where, where was Dr. Davila when millions were pouring into this country unchecked? When all these variants were allowed to just kind of come on in. Because they didn't just get here. They came in from someone traveling into this country. Why hasn't she been demanding, because I haven't heard her once, demanding more rapid tests? That should have been in place months ago. You know, it didn't have to be this way. And they should have been ready for this. Those in charge should have been ready. Because they had emergency plans rehearsed. They had SARS to fall back in. And there were emergency plans all laid out for them. I was reading over the weekend, Anthony Fury, he writes in The Sun that all these experts now locking down entire societies, killing us slowly, they had access to a pandemic guidebook created back in 2018 by all levels of government. It, it was a complete go-to guide for all levels of government should a worst-case scenario arise, which would, yes, include a pandemic. And it has all the worst-case scenarios, like what if half the population gets sick? What if mass casualties overwhelm healthcare? I mean, it lays out the what ifs, what to do. And yes, then COVID comes along and those in charge don't follow the guidebook. They light their hair on fire and throw the book out the window. Because nowhere in this guide does it say lock down entire societies. I mean, the most aggressive recommendations 
or social distancing measures, minimizing things like large gatherings and school closures. The most important thing, which of course we've been ignoring for a total year, is protecting the most vulnerable. That would be quarantining long-term care. That is the most crucial step. Those are the people who are dying. And one year later, we still haven't got it right yet. And later in the show, I'm going to be chatting with a now-retired former lieutenant colonel who spent 27 years of his life uh, leading Canadian troops uh, in the former Yugoslav in Germany back in the 90s. He uh, was deployed to Croatia, Romania. He knows his emergency preparation. And when he was finished in the military, he was hired by the Alberta government to come up with an emergency preparedness plan, you know, only to watch decades of his expertise also get tossed out the window when COVID hit. And he states the obvious. Like, why would you have an emergency plan if those in charge throw it out the window when the emergency hits? And I talked to him for some time today. And yes, all emergencies are different. But he says the planning process has to stay the same, especially when we had so much time and warning watching what was happening in China and Europe. So he's just shaking his head over where we find ourselves a year into this gong show. You know, because it comes down to panicky politicians who were just constantly surprised by scenarios that were totally predictable. That's what's so frustrating. You know, instead of getting a measured and timely response by those in charge who kept telling us it's low risk, we're ready, we're prepared, we had SARS. He points out that our biggest mistakes have been doing things like locking healthy people down and then blindly following a campaign of fear coming out of China and doing exactly what they did, even though most of what China did was based on lies and obfuscation. And so he's written to the premiers across Canada, including Premier Ford, and he is urging them, pivot back to emergency plans that never should have been abandoned. You know, he looks at pandemics and says they are not a public health emergency. They have to be seen as a public emergency. And he believes that putting doctors in charge solely has been a mistake. And that is not a slight to those on the front lines, not at all. It is a reminder, I think, and it's been talked about, that health experts will always go to extremes to protect specific health threats. But they have ignored the threat that those measures pose to the public at large. You want to protect the vulnerable? Protect the vulnerable. Don't shut down all healthy people, because then you just hurt everybody. And so his two big key pieces of advice, immediately now quarantine long-term care homes. That means no one goes in, no one comes out, and he will explain how that's done. And immediately change the rhetoric that we're hearing all the time and move to a position of confidence to reassure people that our hospital system is not going to collapse because we built surge capacity. And we did. You just look at the Joseph Brent Hospital in uh, Burlington. They built a COVID response unit. Only seven people are using the beds. And I thought this was interesting. He said, ignoring our long-established and hard-learned pandemic response goals and following a failed lockdown response has caused massive collateral damage in terms of death and long-term effects on our population. And that collateral damage is largely being ignored. And it's causing massive damage to our social fabric, our mental health, our severe other health conditions, and our children's education and our economy. So the politicians have been a disaster. And the measures put in by health experts, they have not worked. So maybe it is time we listen to guys like this who actually have the expertise to know how to deal with an emergency response. 
and maybe they've got the ideas to get us out of this thing because it looks like we're going to be here for a while. So we'll talk to that retired colonel here on Point on Global News Radio. Let's think back to those early days of COVID-19 when the go-to line for Health Minister Patty Haidu was, eh, it's all low risk and we're prepared. Well, she was severely wrong and has not been right since. Given we had SARS, we should have been ready, but of course, very few, I guess, heeded that advice. And as Anthony Fury wrote about in The Sun this weekend, we had a pandemic preparedness guidebook, which was produced back in 2018, and it lays out all the worst case scenarios, like what happens if half the population gets sick, or what happens if mass fatalities overrun hospitals, or, you know, we get hit by a pandemic. And not once in that guidebook did it suggest that you flatten entire economies. Nowhere. Instead, COVID hit politicians across the country. They lit their hair on fire and threw all the planning guides out the window and decided to repeat the mistakes we've seen made around the world. Because what the guide did call for were things like social distancing, shutting down large gatherings, maybe even school closures at the, at the worst, even in the most dire situation. And yet we have yet to see any of that. What the 2018 guide suggests is supporting hospitals, not shutting down entire, you know, societies. And now a retired lieutenant colonel who spent 27 years in the military and who was then hired to head Alberta's emergency management agency has penned a letter to all the premiers sending his briefing materials and imploring them to pivot back to the emergency planning that he believes never should have been ignored. His name his name is David Redmond. He joins me now. And you may be retired, but you're still a lieutenant colonel, and I thank you for your service. Thank you, ma'am. Ma'am. All right. Um, I, uh, call me I know. Colonel, I'll call you, ma'am. Oh, <laughs> all right. I'll call you, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you spent 27 years overseas leading Canadian troops. You, you're well qualified to know emergency preparedness. You were in Yugoslavia. You were in Germany. You were deployed to Croatia, Romania. And because of that expertise, you then get ha- hired to um, lead Alberta's emergency management agency and, it, in, and give your expertise in emergency planning. And what you're suggesting and what you see now makes you say what? Well, first of all, in any emergency, the first thing you do is you look at the hazard and you try and protect those who are most vulnerable. And those are our seniors. We knew that back in February, it was clear worldwide that 95% of the deaths worldwide in February were in seniors over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. That should have led us to immediately look at quarantining our long-term care homes. That's where our concentrations are. If we'd done that, we might have saved 75% of the 20,750 deaths that we've had so far, and that means we could have saved 15,000 Canadians. The second thing you do is you take your pre-written plans, and we had plans that were based on the lessons learned from all our previous pandemics. And one of the hard lessons learned we had found in every pandemic that had hit our country and other countries was that lockdowns don't work. When you try and isolate people, each one of our planning guides said you lose use these as the very last resort and only in extremely severe pandemics because the results of lockdowns had proved time and time over again to be more dangerous and cause way more damage than the benefit they may provide. 
It's a sad lesson that we've relearned because there was a study done by a group of eminent um, doctors who have published in December, once again, that the actual effects of lockdowns in terms of Mm -hmm. stopping the spread of COVID is minimal to zero. So if it's not stopping the spread, why are we doing it? When, in fact, it's causing massive mental health, societal health, it's crushing the education of our children, it's causing deaths in other severe diseases because people are too afraid to go to the hospital when they're having a heart attack, and it's devastated our economy. Now, when you talk about immediately quarantining long-term care homes, uh, the premiers, those in charge would say, well, we've put the iron ring around, and it can't be around these people because they're still dying. And the other thing you say, you know, that needs to change is this rhetoric in the media and move to a more confident and reassuring message uh, to explain to people that hospitals are not going to collapse because we built surge capacity. That is not the message we are told on a daily basis. Absolutely not. So one of the things that I was taught in the military is you build confidence in government. The way to build confidence in government is for government to say, we've got this, and then explain why, what they've done, the preparations they've made, and the fact that they're ready for whatever comes at them. We've seen the exact opposite. So we've seen a campaign of fear. And part of that campaign of fear has always been in telling half-truths. So when you're told that there's 1,400 people in the critical care beds in Ontario, what you're missing is the denominator. The denominator is that there are, in fact, 22,000 critical health care beds in Ontario, and only 1,400 of them are being used for COVID patients. So if your hospital system is being overwhelmed, it's not by COVID. The second thing you should be saying is, and we've built surge capacity. We're going to expand the number of beds acute care beds, and we're also going to expand our ICU capacity. We keep hearing about that way too late. That should have been discussed and put into place back in February if we'd followed any of our original plans. So uh, I'm seeing a campaign of fear being led in the media nightly by doctors instead of a campaign of confidence led by the government. Let me ask you this, because When it comes to pandemics, most say that they're a public health emergency, and that's why we've got so many doctors who are speaking. But you've got other sides of of doctors who are starting to come forward and saying, hold on a second, these lockdown measures aren't proper, but they either get drowned out or they get kind of blacklisted. You see this more as a public emergency, and you don't believe that enough um, leadership was given to those with the kind of military experience that, that you have. Have anybody at a, a provincial or um, a federal level listened to any planning done by those who have military expand, uh, experience or those with emergency preparedness training? So I, I, w- I would obviously uh, believe that they haven't. I know in certain provinces for sure they haven't. The emergency management organizations have been sidelined and the doctors have been placed in charge. And I'm not picking on doctors. This is something that they should never have been put in charge of. So I want to go back to your first statement. A pandemic is a public emergency. It affects every sector of our economy. It affects the public sector, the private sector. It affects every citizen. Doctors are in charge of running the medical system. That's just one tube of our economy. 
there's the power grid, there's the, the, the natural gas that heats your home, there's the food supply system, there's all the different systems that make up our critical infrastructure, and there's an organization called an EMO that every day monitors across all the sectors of our economy looking for hazards that are going to impact them, making sure critical infrastructure is operating, and providing the government, the premiers, with all the tools they need to ensure the complete stability of the, the jurisdiction. What I've seen is them pushed aside and the doctors who aren't trained in any of that and shouldn't be trained in any of that expected to step up. So that's why we're seeing things like in our meat packing plants and our poultry industry and all the other areas. We see these, these sudden emergencies that appear out of nowhere that there doesn't seem to be any grip or plan for. And that's because there isn't. That's not their job. They don't, they, they're surprised by each of these things and we never should have been surprised. Yeah, it's it's interesting because Dr. Davila, who is Toronto's top uh, doctor, um, disagrees with the premier reopening the uh, province, albeit it is a very slow reopening and a lot of businesses are not going to survive at this rate. Um, and she doesn't believe that we should be reopening because we have now a pandemic within a pandemic, given the new variants that have come in. And you have written all the premiers now. And what are you asking of them? Because that's the kind of advice that they would heed is is the the words of, of a doctor like that. And, and my concern is where, where's the concern for the pandemic of mental illness or the pandemic of bankruptcies or economic uh, destruction? There there are other pandemics that are happening outside of COVID that seem to kind of get, you know, ignored. So. I, I don't like to delve into the medical world. That's not my area of expertise, but I'm going to just for, for a part of your answer. First of all, it should never have been a surprise that there was going to be shifts in viruses. That's what viruses do all the time. They constantly shift. Why do we get an annual flu vaccine? Because every year a new flu emerges. COVID is no different. COVID's going to shift and change constantly. So is the answer every time that we see a new shift in COVID going to be that we lock down again? Because the third wave will come next October. Seasonal flus and, and viruses happen like this every year. It shouldn't be a surprise the third wave will start in the middle of October. Are we going to lock down our economy again? We've already almost doubled our national debt. And if we don't think that's going to have a massive impact on our medical system, then we're obviously living in a dream world. The, the challenge that we have is to do a sustainable approach. Step one, as long as seniors are at risk, 84 is the average age of the deaths in Canada. 96% of the deaths in Canada have been in seniors over the age of 60 with multiple comorbidities. Average age 84, we've completely failed them. When I say quarantine, long-term care homes, I mean in a caring and a compassionate way, but a quarantine means the staff and the residents. You put the staff on a shift system so you don't burn them out, but they do 30 days, they live in a quarantine center, they go do their shifts and they can work as many as you want. When they're done their 30 days, they go home to their families, and the next shift that's been quarantined for 14 days takes over for 30 days. You can do a many, many different ways you can do it, but it looks like we haven't even thought of that, and that's why at one point in time in Ontario, 40% of your long-term care homes were having outbreaks. That's unconscionable. Yeah. We knew in February they were the most at risk. But the flip side of that is you don't then try and lock down your whole society because the effects of, on mental health, societal health, the crushing of our children's education, the deaths from other severe diseases, and the massive impact on our economy. If you lock it down, that's going to cause, there's doctors have written saying that it's causing 10 times 
more damage than any possible good. And serious world-renowned doctors saying the effect on the actual spread of the disease is minimal. As you force people indoors, this virus spreads indoors. And it, it, it's a misnomer to think that people aren't going out to buy food and that they're not going out to get essential services. They do it once, they catch it, they bring it home, and now they're in a contained environment. It's been proven over and over and over that lockdowns are not the way forward in a pandemic. We learned it every pandemic before. We wrote it into our plans so we would never do this. So why are we doing it? And so what are you asking then? How do you pivot at this point, this late in now with variants here? What can the premiers do if they listen to you? Quarantine the long-term care homes and open up for business again. And I mean in a reasonable, stepped manner, but you have to break the cycle of fear in the public, and that needs a plan to explain to the public why we should never have done the lockdowns in the first place and how we're going to pivot away from them in a very rapid manner to get our business back online, to get our children back in school, to, to, to make sure that we now have money in our mental health care and our societal health care budgets to overcome all the damage we've done. Well, I hope someone's listening uh, right now. It doesn't seem like we're headed in that direction. And in fact, um, we have the healthcare, uh, you know, in, in charge. And I'm not sure if that pivot can happen, but I sure do appreciate your insight into this. And I will call on you again. Thank you very much. And you have a great evening. You as well. That is David Redman, who is a retired lieutenant colonel, because he can't call me ma'am now, but uh, he earned the title. Uh, he's got a wealth of information on emergency uh, preparedness. Um, and at some point, well, you got to stop doing what we're doing because it's not working. I mean, Doug Ford said today, if he has to shut down the economy again because the numbers are going up, then he's going to do it. Well, of course, the numbers are going to go up. That's what happens. And we're just going to be caught in this vicious cycle with no vaccines in sight. Because if you think they're coming, you haven't heard today's news. Stay with us here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. The COVAX vaccines were a way the developed countries like Canada were helping poorer countries have access to vaccines. The very fact that Canada is the only G7 country asking the COVAX consortium for vaccines is is demonstration that we have no plan. And that is Aaron O'Toole talking about the issues of what happens when you take from COVAX. And uh, sure, we're going to get some of those vaccines. It's how we're getting them and who we are taking them from That's not just embarrassing to Canada, but it's not what the COVAX program was set up to do. And it was the Trudeau government that was front of the line to set up this program along with the WHO. And it was Trudeau who stood outside his cottage announcing $440 million that this country was giving and telling us, quote, none of us is safe until all of us are safe. Global solidarity, he said, is central to saving lives and protecting the economy. Now, Canada is not breaking any rules by taking uh, vaccines from COVAX, but now that our vaccines are not rolling out and it's turning into a disaster for this government, we are taking millions of shots that are meant to go to the world's poorest people in what is nothing short of a political stunt. Jason Nickerson is a humanitarian affairs advisor for Doctors Without Borders. He joins us now. Good to have you, Jason. Hi, thanks for having me. When you learned that the Canadian government was taking from COVAX and were the only G7 nation to do that and doing it so early on, what was your initial reaction? Well, I mean, it's been fairly similar, I would say, to our reaction throughout uh, this entire pandemic. I mean, for the, the past 
several months, what we've seen is that the, the volume of doses that are available to COVAX um, has been woefully in, inadequate. I mean, you you mentioned, um, you know, the fact that Canada is facing an, an uncertain supply timeline and, and uh, supply disruptions in, in getting vaccines uh, to our high-risk people here in Canada, healthcare workers and people in long-term care and so on. You know, the, the reality is that uh, as of today, uh, although uh, certainly I, do, I don't want to minimize the, the challenges or the necessity of vaccinating those high-risk people in Canada, the, the reality is that in sub-Saharan Africa, not a single person has been vaccinated uh, with a COVID vaccine outside of a clinical trial. And that's despite the fact that, um, you know, we, we are seeing a resurgent second wave that's happening uh, in many countries, particularly in South Africa, Southern Africa. Um, so, you know, the, the reaction to um, the the story last week that Canada was going to be taking vaccines um, from the COVAX facility um, is is still uh, a concerning one um, in the sense that uh, we need to be making sure that the highest risk people uh, everywhere around the world have access to this vaccine as, as quickly as possible. Um, and COVAX mm-hmm. is, by and large, the, the mechanism that countries are depending on to, to be able to do that. So we need to make sure that it has the, the maximum number of doses available uh, to, to facilitate that quickly. It's not a small amount either. I mean, we initially get 1.9 million doses from COVAX for Canada, but uh, you know, we, I guess the Trudeau government has asked for 4 million doses and it is, is being done because we can't get them here, but that is not the fault of African uh, nations. I mean, I believe that yes, Canadians should be vaccinated. We should be vaccinated first, uh, but that does not mean that we should be taking from uh, those who have a completely different setup that we donate to. So I, I look at this as a, a government trying to, um, you know, clog the holes and buy time and try to save their political hide should an election be called in the spring, which is anticipated. But you know what we are doing essentially is taking from the poor to cover a politician's rear end? Well, I have a slightly different take on that, uh, to be honest. I mean, I, you know, this government has, has said a few times in the past couple of weeks that, you know, they're purchasing from COVAX and that's something that they have been saying they were going to do uh, all along. And, and in fact, they are correct. I mean, one of the, mm-hmm. the ways in which COVAX was set up is that there's, there's two streams. There's something called an advanced market commitment, uh, which is essentially a, a pool of funds to create Exactly that. It's an advanced market, uh, you know, to incentivize the scale up of manufacturing uh, and distribution for for COVID vaccines, because uh, often pharmaceutical companies will look at low and middle income countries as being non profitable and don't factor uh, them in, quite frankly, to their business plans and the scale up. Um, but then the second uh, stream of COVAX. Uh, is for what's called self-financing countries, so countries like Canada uh, and and others who can procure their vaccines or some of their vaccines uh, through COVAX. And and that second stream is important because I I think that we need to remember that COVAX is set up essentially in response to the fact that the, the, the way that new medicines and vaccines are developed and distributed is inequitable. Uh, not just for COVID, but in, in general. I mean, our, our patients who are in low and middle income countries often do not benefit from timely or affordable access to new life-saving medicines. So COVAX is fundamentally uh, in, a, a response to that. And I think we should be looking at it as an opportunity for, for change to the way that we develop and distribute uh, new vaccines and, and not charity. 
Now, the problem is that although countries um, signed up uh, for this sort of change uh, objective to be able to procure vaccines through it, that's not the, what's been happening for the past couple of months, right? On the one mm-hmm. hand, countries like Canada signed up and said, okay, we want to procure through COVAX and we're going to put money on the table to make this system work. And I think that that's a good thing. But then what's happened is that countries have gone and signed these bilateral agreements, um, which ultimately have monopolized the available supply and, and limited the number of vaccines that were available to COVAX. And it comes back to what I said before, which is that um, you know, the, the COVAX supply announcement that came out last week is the first supply announcement and distribution announcement through this mechanism. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that there are other countries who, for the past two months, have had some access to these new vaccines, and, and none of those have gone to low- and middle-income countries. Right. So I don't think that the, the problem is specifically that Canada, you know, is is accessing these vaccines. It has to do with the, the fact that we're... we're trying to have our cake and and eat it too, right? On the one hand, we've signed these bilateral agreements that, as I say, monopolize supply and and have essentially restricted the available supply to COVAX. But now we're we're going to go and and also procure through this mechanism. Um, And there's no doubt that by having wealthy countries like Canada um, take vaccines uh, or procure vaccines at this very moment when countries who are entirely dependent on COVAX need them. I mean, that just reduces the the available supply to be distributed to countries who are entirely dependent on it. Um, and so, I, you know, I think that the right move for, for Canada here is, is to sit this one out. Um, now is really not the moment to be procuring vaccines through COVAX. Those uh, need to be allocated to countries who are essentially entirely dependent on this mechanism as their sole point of access for vaccines. Um, but I don't yeah. think it's entirely wrong for Canada to to be investing uh, in, in COVAX as a purchaser. Um, but I think that since we've struck these bilateral deals, this this round of allocations is, is simply not the time for, for us to be uh, taking them. Right. And, and I would agree with that. It's like, you know, a G7 nation should not be taking on the first round um, because we're the ones who are supposed to be front of the line to get vaccines. But clearly, as you see, the world supply is just not there. Uh, and certainly Canada's vaccines are not rolling in. Are there other countries uh, involved in COVAX that are threatening to possibly get in on the first round as well because they're lacking vaccines? Well, there's a number of, of self-financing countries um, that you know, have have signed up uh, to or, or are being allocated doses through this uh, first round. But um, I, I have to admit that I, I don't know the details of every country's you know, status of, of bilateral purchase agreements and so on, because it's, you know, quite quite a, a, a messy playing field um, at the moment. Um, but, it, you know, I, I think coming back to this idea that that COVAX should fundamentally be about a change in the way that we procure and, and purchase and, and distribute vaccines is really the, the conversation that we need to be having. And um, because the I think what we're all seeing through this pandemic and whether we're talking about purchasing and, and procuring vaccines for Canadians or for people in, in low and middle income countries is that we have a, a really quite dysfunctional research and development and, and distribution system, you know, that doesn't necessarily prioritize uh, diseases that have a large public health threat or that have a pandemic potential. Um, you know, we're, we're prioritizing the wrong things. We do not have a, a pharmaceutical uh, manufacturing system around the world that's capable of scaling up to meet global demand. You know, these systems simply weren't designed 
to to meet objectives like global equitable access. We see that, right? We we don't have factories and and manufacturing capacity to respond to a global pandemic. And that's the fundamental problem um, that I think we need to be addressing. And and COVAX was one route for, uh, you know, making do with sort of scarce access to limited uh, vaccine resources. Um, But as we move into a Canadian conversation around what kind of a research and development uh, ecosystem we want and what kind of biomanufacturing capacity we want to have and and so on, you know, we really need to be having these quite deep uh, uh, conversations about how do we restructure our relationship with uh, medical research and development and how do we ensure a better return on investment for uh, the Canadian public and, and the global public because we're contributing, quite frankly, billions of dollars into research and development without demanding very much, you know, without demanding fair pricing, without demanding uh, that, you know, final products be made affordable and accessible for people in Canada or anywhere around the world. So this is a really big, complicated uh, question and, and subject. But I think that now that we're, we're all in this together trying to access scarce vaccines uh, and, and to get them developed quickly and manufactured affordably and equitably and so on, you know, I think that we're coming around to this realization that we've got a big problem and we need to fix it. Will not be fixed in one segment, and I have a feeling it's not the only conversation to be had. We will have it again. Jason, I do appreciate your time on it. Thanks very much for having me. And Jason Nickerson is with Doctors Without Borders. And again, we will uh, revisit and see how it's going because, again, as you're seeing, the vaccine rollout around the world is a bit of a mess, certainly here in Canada. Stay with us. Alex Pearson on point, and this is Global News Radio. The question is, you know, why can't we make vaccines in Canada? Well easy. We just don't invest. We don't invest in pharmaceutical innovation. And I think Canada has made it very clear for decades that uh, we don't have a big interest in spending money on drug development or making it worthwhile for big pharma to invest here. And I would think the final straw likely might have been the Trudeau plan to offer cheap generic drugs in a national pharmacare plan that has yet to be rolled out. And now it may never be because one of the many things COVID has forced us to confront are the many failures and shortcomings in our health care. And I think we've been forced to admit we just simply can't rely on others to make what we should and could very easily make ourselves. And procurement Anita, a procurement minister Anita Anand uh, just last week punctuated this problem, admitting Thursday that every COVID-19 vaccine company that we signed a deal with in this country was asked, can we make the doses in Canada? They all said no. Richard Owens is a lawyer, senior fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute, and a longtime adjunct law professor at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law. He joins us now. Good to have you, Richard. Great to be with you. We have talked about this issue before because it wasn't really a problem before the vaccines, but um, now the pharma companies, I think, have put Canada on notice that they're just not interested in doing anything with us at all. Well, I think that's right. Look, we have uh, a long history of uh, of uh, uh, trying to prevent innovation in this country, particularly when it comes to pharmaceutical research. Uh, that history has become far worse under the Trudeau governments, and uh, pharma is. You know, I'd say they're fed up. They're not, surprisingly. They keep trying to negotiate with us constructively, but we keep pushing their backs against the wall. And they're desperate because uh, the government plan to confiscate 
steal more of their profits, make it even right. harder for them to invest and sell drugs here, um, means they're not going to not going to invest here. They're not even going to sell drugs here increasingly because they can't do it and make money. And I won't explain it well, but you can certainly fill in the blanks on this. One of the things that the Trudeau government was going to do, and I think they were supposed to roll this out last June was this, you know, this new Medicare, National um, Pharmacare program that would sound really good on the surface, but what it did to Canada was offer very um, low-priced drugs, but it cuts us off from choice. It cuts Canadians off from getting better kinds of um, pharmaceuticals. And I think a lot of the pharmaceutical companies said, well, if you're going to go that way, we just won't do any business with you at all. We'll go to the countries that want to buy uh, good drugs. Yeah, that, that's essentially right. You know, there's two separate threads here. One of them is Pharmacare. Pharmacare is a big solution to a very small problem. Basically, few Canadians have trouble affording drugs, and mm -hmm. if, to the extent they do, sure, let's help them. But rolling out a national program is, um, is, is a very blunt instrument and quite unnecessary for Canada. In furtherance of that, though, the government has this ulterior plan, and what it's trying to do is keep making drugs, not the generic drugs, but the patented drugs, still cheaper, so that they will be sold here at enormous discounts and thereby, perhaps, either be affordable to a pharmacare program or simply not be available, so the pharmacare program won't have to pay for it. The result for us, though, is no access to important cures and poorer health greater mortality. Um, mm. the, the government has this mechanism called the Patented, Medicines Prices, Patented Medicine Prices Review Board and mm. uh, is introducing new guidelines to use that, that board, which should simply be abolished. It's got no valid role in this country. To, to take it from driving down prices um, by a current 20%, which is already confiscatory and, and wrong, and, and by another 20% or more, talking about taking like $9 billion annually out of the, uh, out of the, the pharmaceutical market in Canada, it's just not sustainable. No, and you know, we're learning a very tough lesson. You know, we're watching countries like India be able to produce their own vaccines and we're watching countries race past us right now being able to um, somehow get licensed, uh, you know, get licensed to, to make these vaccines and roll them out themselves. And we just didn't bother to do that. We played the, the strategy of relying on others and it has been the costliest mistake uh, I think for Mr. Trudeau, um, but certainly, you know, Health Canada has not helped. They're very slow in approving, you know, vaccines that are still kind of sitting in front of them, like the AstraZeneca, a whole, a, a couple of others that probably could expedite things. Um, we're just not very good at this. No, we're terrible at it. You know, there's two issues. Look, we, as a small country, and we are a very small country, we can't produce everything. Um, but we can produce a lot more than we do. In order to do that, we need uh, the ingredients of an innovation culture. That means strong intellectual property laws. We have denied pharma the benefit of intellectual property protection in this country forever. And we still have substandard laws. We need a healthcare system which um, actually invests in new therapies as opposed to simply trying to control costs. We need, we need um, a regulator, Health Canada, which can respond quickly and bring new therapies into a domestic market that, could, that can then help sustain and give a return on investment. 
and so on. We just don't have an innovation ecology in this country. We have a cost control mentality. Mm-hmm. It's an entirely, entirely different thing. If we were contributing on that basis, we would be part of a global um, innovation economy uh, that, that uh, we would be contributing to and which would lead to more investment and which would lead to more access to uh, vaccines and other goods in, in this global health economy. You know, there are some things which probably we need to produce here because we just simply can't be without them. But we can't do it all. We just can't. But if we do nothing, we've got no <laughs> leverage. We've got no basis to negotiate um, to, get, to get access to the things we need and can't produce. And yeah. one of the keys uh, there, of course, is, is, is um, uh, sound procurement policies. And uh, the government was simply caught short. They had um, no basis to claim preference for vaccine supplies, and they negotiated this tremendously foolish deal with a coercive, tyrannical government, which was never going to honor its bargains. So, you know, every, everything that they could do wrong, they've done and continue to do. And continue to do. Well, you know, we've got private companies that would happily have stood up and, and it would have taken some investment, but certainly not the price we're paying now. And they still don't seem interested in going that route. Well, that's right. Um, that's right. And basically, innovation never happens through government, certainly not in pharmaceuticals. Uh, government may like to control things, but um, it's it's not a practical way to actually have innovative drugs and therapies produced for the people. Um, If you look at the history of the Trudeau government and his directions, for instance, to his ministries, everything is larded with how can we give money away? How can we buy capacity? How can we subsidize? He's got such a limited understanding of of the levers of government policy. You know, what we need is a way to bring in private capital, a way to make mm-hmm. to retain expertise in this country, a way to protect access to markets so things can be commercialized for the benefit of patients, and so on. Instead, we have this fumbling government control and sort of uh, benign socialism, which uh, always leaves us at the back of the pack. Yeah. I think what you're saying is, we well, what I'm going to say is that we need a prime minister with a brain. And some (laughs) forethought. But that is my thought, not yours. Nonetheless, we will chat again because I know that this is an area that you write about and uh, certainly is going to be a topic we talk about as we sit back and wait and wait and wait for the vaccines. Uh, A pleasure, Richard. Thank you for your time. I'll look forward to next time. Thank you. That is Richard Owens joining us. And uh, yeah, he wrote about this uh, issue before, not necessarily with the vaccines, but the reason why no one really wants to deal with us because we're just not competitive, innovative or interested. Not until now, because now we're desperate. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio. You, of course, can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 630 sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.